Welcome to this episode of Right Stuff, presented by me, Chris Fitzgerald, and produced by Daniel O'Connor through the Head Stuff Podcast Network. In this episode, I spoke with Michael Harding. Michael's fourth book, On Tuesdays I'm a Buddhist, came out last year. As well as being a great writer, Michael is a really captivating speaker, which I think comes across in this interview. We start this with Michael reading from On Tuesdays I'm a Buddhist, and then we go into a fairly philosophical discussion with Michael, so I hope you enjoy this. Uh, Please like, share, subscribe, review, and enjoy the podcast. As a child, I used to tell myself bedtime stories, and I would daydream my way into stories when I was awake. As a teenager, I concocted wild romantic fantasies about girls on bicycles that could never happen in real life because I was shy and terrified, both of the strangeness and familiarity of girls. But stories and fantasies kept loneliness at bay. I could imagine being with girls. I could imagine holding them. I could imagine what they said and how things always ended with me, the hero, glowing in the light of their adoring gaze. I was terrified of my teachers, too, so I never paid attention in class. Instead, I fell into dreams, daydreams. They created a wall between me and whatever was going on in the class. If I was afraid of shadows in the bedroom at night, I told myself stories. My fear of being alone, isolated and unloved was kept at bay by stories and fairy tales. My anxieties dissolved when I allowed myself to be possessed by a story. Even now, I'm ashamed to admit, the stories I made up when I was a child were often about my own death. I dreamed that I would die at 16. I often imagined my own funeral and all the people in the church talking and chattering about who I was and how they never really understood me. But now that I was dead, they could see I was a hero. I would imagine the hearse and the service and the burial in the ground. I would imagine the President of Ireland and all the archbishops around the grave, shots being fired in a gun salute. I was dead, but I had become a hero. That was the story. And though it was a bleak ritual, it did keep the fear of death at a distance, because it wrapped death in a story. Michael, thanks a million for talking to us. How are you getting on? How are you enjoying the uh, List All Writers Week so far? I'm having a great time. Yeah? Yeah. It's always you, a good week. You're delivering workshops. Yeah, Can I'm doing workshops. Can you tell us about the aim of those, or what are they about? I know you're, uh, you're, you're touring them, so you might not want to give too much away. But No, it's, it's just a workshop uh, called The Art of Memoir, and uh, I do a kind of a... It's not a class, it's, it's, a, it's a workshop, so people do the work. And it's trying to empower people to... Uh, tell their own story, I suppose. Mm. Uh, what kind of um, results are you getting then in this kind of environment? Well, it's it's a kind of a sharing, you know. I don't know whether there are results to be produced, but um, everybody has an interest in life. And to remember your life, to look back on your life, to reflect on your life, these are really... Uh, ways that you can step into the present moment. Um, Garcia Marquez, a great writer, once said that we we relish life more in the memory than in the experience. And uh, all of us have times where we live through trauma or stressful times, and it's not funny. But very often we look back on it and it is funny. 
we, we, we smile when we look back. So remembering is a strange thing. And a story, sharing stories of something that happened to you is very therapeutic. So there's, there's kind of like if you go to the therapist and you pay your 60 euros for an hour session, she or he really listens. And eventually, you'll start telling your story. You'll start saying, well, you know, when I was young, this happened to me, or I don't get on with my father because one day he said this and I said that. And so storytelling is actually what you do in therapy, and that's a kind of a, a way whereby the therapist is a, a shaman. Um, another place it happens is, let's say, for example, at funerals, when you're in grief and if you go into a wake house and let's say the woman is there and, and the man is in the coffin uh, she'll say something like oh John you're very good to come and then she'll tell you the story. she'll say like oh do you know we were just we were watching Carnation Street and he always makes a cup of tea at the, at the interval and he didn't come back with the cup of tea. When it was over, I went out into the kitchen and he was there on the floor. She'll tell you what happened. Mm. She tells you the story. Now, if you sat there and somebody else comes in, she'll tell the same story again. Exactly the same. Oh, we were watching Carnation Street and blah, blah, blah. And maybe after a hundred times telling it, she'll actually start adding bits and taking out bits. So, so she'll actually start editing it. She'll say maybe, oh, we were watching Carnation Street. Now, I don't normally watch it, but they said there was something good on it this week, so he wanted to watch it. And he was going out for a run after the cup of tea. And he didn't come back, and when I went into the kitchen, he was lying beside the runners. She's added an image mm. of drama, and she's done that unconsciously. She's edited her own story. So what was she doing there? She is telling the story to cope with her grief and uh, the group around her operators as as the therapist if you like the listener to say I want to hear your story because I want to hear the pain or the wound or whatever so the thing of telling stories uh, is hugely important for good health mm -hmm. it's hugely important to be happy that you can tell your story sometimes young people when they're in love, they might have a, a little sexual intimacy. But maybe it's after the sexual intimacy, they look at each other and they start saying things like, what does your father do? Or, do I know your mother? Is she the one in the show? You know, mm -hmm. And they, they, get, they, they begin to tell their stories to each other. So and, story yeah. is this huge thing. And it brings you into the present. You know, it, it, it's like... It's when the story is over that you feel more present to other people because you've just told your story. And that's the therapeutic value of it. So yeah. that's what you do in uh, Art of Memoir those workshops. De those details that come from the remembering, you say, after the woman has told it a hundred times. Yeah. Is that because I mean, we our memories of events are often memories of the memories? If you know what I mean. So the, is it the memory that's changing when you get those details or is it the realising that they can put in all this extra detail as they go along? Well, I think, I think the events are there. In other words, the person at the mm. funeral uh, 
the whole detail. You know, you live through a you live through the day standing, uh, watching the telly, and the partner falls down in the kitchen. So every detail happened, but in the first telling of it, you mightn't remember. You just want to get to the point. What happened? John is dead. He went into the kitchen and he collapsed. But the strange thing about storytelling in grief is that we begin to add pieces. It's not that they're new pieces, but they were there all the time as memories, but we didn't see a significant. Then we begin adding. So we, we, we start to embellish the story to make it work. So it's, when there's distance between you and the event, you can, there's space to add those details. Is it, I mean, if, if, it, if it happened a longer time ago, and you've probably subconsciously been reflecting on those events... I've heard people talk about, let's say, their father's death mm. 30 years ago, and they would do the same thing. They, they would remember a little bit of it. Mm. But if you draw them out, they'll remember more things. Yeah. You know? And the two things that you've been mentioning a lot there are therapy and uh, storytelling, and that's kind of the, the subtitle of your latest book on Tuesdays, I'm a Buddhist, Expeditions yeah. in an In-Between World Where Therapy Ends and Stories Begin. Yeah. And therapy is it's a big chapter of the book, actually. And yeah. has that drawn stories out of you then as you've been talking to your therapist you're realizing those details and your ability to reflect on those is well, increasing yeah in the book i recount uh, a kind of a relationship with the therapist that i think illustrates how going to the therapist was a process of storytelling and i suppose the one thing i wanted to examine about therapy was to ask the question, is, is therapy enough? Do you know, is it enough when you name the problem? Like, some person might say, I'm an alcoholic. So have you named it? Have you finished? Is that it? Or I'm bipolar, or I'm depressed, or whatever. Th these are languages of, like, psychotherapy or psychology. And when you name yourself in these truths the question for me is is that enough and there's two things bother me one is there's a Japanese phrase that says if we name the bird we cease to experience the song so okay. that if in naming myself you know people would say things like oh I'm passive aggressive or I'm an introvert or I'm an extrovert and they, they get them sometimes from psychological analysis. Mm. But if somebody tells me at, let's say, 20 years of age, I, I'm actually, I'm an introvert, is there a danger that they will become the label? That labeling is labeling. Then it, it certainly happens when young people are growing up and you say, well, he's a delinquent. And if you put that label enough on him, it becomes liable and then he'll become a delinquent. Yeah. We, we follow how we are named. So if, you, if you tell somebody, it's, it's again why the Irish phrase is true, if you tell people, young people, that they are actually unique and wonderful, they usually become that, you know. If you tell them they're always wrong, you know, they just, you know, they end up like my generation, maybe, you know, broken because you were just told so negatively that you were wrong all the time. So, so, so the naming of people is dangerous. And so I, I began to wonder about, while, while therapy seems to me 
as natural and necessary as going to the doctor. I go to the doctor at my age regularly to get what you call a checkup. It's not because I'm sick, but, you know, the doctor will test your bloods and do this and that and the other to make sure that you're in good condition, that you're not, you know, a deficiency in B12 or calcium or something. And in the same way, I go to the therapist, not because I'm having a bad experience or a crash or something. I have been depressed, I've experienced depression, gone to a therapist, but I still would go every, I don't know, not every, like maybe once every two years, I might see a gap and I'd say, I might just have an old session with the therapist. Servicing. Uh, servicing, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, and, and so all I'm saying is, so I, I, I really find therapy a really healthy thing. What I'm saying is, is it enough to name yourself? And it, it seemed to me that maybe the dichotomy is between that kind of shamanic journey with a therapist versus the old-fashioned religious journey. Mm. Now, I was ordained a priest uh, in 1981 as a Catholic Christian priest. Uh, my great-grandmother was Jewish, and after a very short time in the priesthood and realizing I was completely on the wrong bus, I got off and started Buddhist practice with a Tibetan Lama. So I've been around the shop in relation to religion. Um, and I've also prayed in the mosque in Finsbury Park. So, like, I find different religions, like different languages, like it's different music. You know, I can enjoy traditional chanting from Syria the same as I can enjoy traditional ch chanting from the Amazon. So it's different musics, beautiful. And I think that... This is the way I've always approached religion. But uh, You're naming religions there as well, which could be labels. I mean, they're, they're identities exactly. you're identifying exactly, yeah. as... You, yeah. But you're identifying as having no religious label now, in a way. You're kind of saying, I am this, I am this, I am this, I am this. Well, I am what I am today. Yeah. That's why the book's called On Tuesdays, I'm a Buddhist. Yeah, yeah. Because maybe Tuesdays I go to, to the Buddhist centre. Mm. It's not that I'm not anything or am anything. Mm. It's, it's like... <clears throat> What you're singing, you're singing today. So, in a sense, there, there's a Buddhist text, the Heart Sutra, and it says in it, and it's the essence of it really, that the ultimate teaching is that there is no teaching. Right? And you, you get this in 20th century Western philosophy as well, that, that knowledge is ultimately subjective. You know, there is no absolute truth. Uh, in the Middle Ages, we lived with a sense of absolute truth. And so religions became embroiled in the sense of we're right. Our truth is right. Our truth actually transcends us. It is right for everybody. And anybody who doesn't take it is actually wrong. Mm -hmm. And we need to, you know, throw them in boiling oil or, you know, tear their scalps off or something. Um. And that has been a hangover in, in, in the West for a long time. Ah, it's a hangover everywhere. It's a natural inclination, I'd say, in the human species to say, I'm right. But I think one of the great insights, uh, there's a great English theologian called Karen Armstrong, and she has a lovely phrase. She says that religion is like art. It's rarely practiced well, you know. And I, I see religion like that. I see it as an art form, like a, a form of music, a form of creativity. But I also see it as kind of, for me, anyway, for me, still necessary. I, I can't live without some sense of an open embrace. Mm. 
of the heart to that which is transcendent, that which is uh, beyond my fingertips, invisible and yet here. I can't get away from the sense that I see you now and I see the microphones and I see the studio and yet it's a veil that beneath, in this moment, there is an intensity that I'm only touching, barely, barely touching. And it's funny the way the physicists, after the quantum is discovered, start to go in the same direction. You know, the, the numinous power of even the tiniest single particle that seems to be constantly changing to wave to particle to wave to particle, you know. Yeah, so, so, it's, so how, can I, mm. how can I inhabit that world by grasping a kind of an intellectual meaning of it? I don't think I can. I have to light a candle. I have to put an, an icon on the wall. I have to walk up Crow Patrick. I have to bless myself. I have to go to a holy well. I have to do a ritual. I can't make love, for example, without my body. Mm. Well, I cannot, I cannot feel the embrace of the cosmos without the ritual. Mm. Yeah. So you're saying moving away from looking for truth, then more looking for meaning. Is that what you're doing in writing as well? You're, you're exploring... I think, yeah. I mean, the meaning is a good, good one. And, you know, there is that you know, man's search for meaning. Mm, and, Victor and, Franklin. And that, yeah, and like the, the whole idea that the joke, like I joke with, with my, you know, wife, you know, after a good day and it's all gone well, I say, are you happy? And she said, no, but it was meaningful. Mm. <laughs> you know, because, we, because the search for happiness, they say among Western people, is just a delusion. It's a grasping at nothing. Mm -hmm. There is no condition called happiness. But there is meaning. There is meaning. And, and there is a sense of being in the present moment that sort of overrides pain, suffering and, and sadness. Mm. And, um, and we can all experience that. We all do. Yeah. But I still wouldn't go for meaning as, as a kind of, oh, that's a better word than truth. Mm. I, would, I would really go for this sense of being in the world, you know, like Tai Chi. Like Tai Chi is a body moving through space. And you can uh, abstract it any way you want from a Western point of view and say, well, it's this, that, and the other. But ultimately, it's moving through space. And there's another Buddhist one, if you don't mind. Mm. Uh, you know, again, these are famous stories, but, you know, the, the young monk comes to the monastery and there's an old fellow sitting under a tree and he sits beside him and he says, uh, that's, that's a lovely tree. And the old fellow says, that's not a tree. Okay? <laughs> yeah. So many, many years later, the young fellow has grown into middle age and he's there on his own one day and he's looking at the tree and he, God, he says, yeah, it's not a tree. Hmm. And the old fellow is really old at this stage. Really old. He's walking around now, walking stick and he hears the young fellow say, ah, I've got it at last. It's not a tree. And the old fellow says, it's a tree. <laughs> right. you know, so our journey is constantly yeah. uh, deconstructing the world around us mm. and the kind of ideas and perceptions we have, like some great web of meaning, and letting it go uh, and finding it. No, it's not as we thought. And yet always coming back to a, a new simplicity. 
simplicity and experience and in the moment and do you of just being there yeah. of, that that you cannot if you name the bird the minute i tell you who i am that's not who i am mm. it's it's just an endless search and can only be experienced you know do you what do you think of the word mindfulness is that what you're oh yeah 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 and on all those traditions of mindfulness that are now pervasive in all sorts of places in mental health have a rich origin and tradition within that Asian stuff of, you know, mind training. Mm. I mean, the, the Dalai Lama once met, he was once asked, what do you think of psychiatry in the West? And he smiled and he said, it's good, he said, very good, he said, but it's in his infancy. Mm. Meaning like, you know, we've been at it for 600 years, mind training, trying to find tactics that actually calm the mind and shape the mind. And to some extent, psychiatry is there now and is beginning to really use this resource, not not to take it in as some sort of, again, new ideological thing, but just simply the practices of mindfulness, practices of, you know, detachment that would be used uh, in, in the Buddhist tradition, find their way into modern secular therapy. And I think are very helpful. Mm. But work provides satisfaction, doesn't it, Michael? And you're working very hard. You're you're all over the place. You're writing all the time for the Irish Times and bringing yeah. it together then for these books. Do you get a lot of satisfaction from your writing? And does that provide, I, if not happiness, then at least satisfaction? I get I get happiness when I physically when I step into something. When I step into uh, sitting on the patio looking at Loch Allen or Schlieveneer and Leitrim. Uh, but it's only being there that does it. And that being there is now in this studio. So it's the same thing. I don't see the work uh, as giving me happiness. There's a great... There's a, there's a there's an American art critic once said that, that art is the tracks of the animal. So if I write books, to me... No, to me, it's really storytelling. To me, if I'm writing in a column in the Irish Times, I'm writing stories. If I write the book or if I get on a stage to read the book, it's this dynamic of sharing stories. And I find that storytelling liberates you into the present moment. When I tell you who I am, you become somebody different the minute you've told who you are. You, you, you've liberated yourself from that label. And that, that makes you in the present moment. If you hear somebody who never has told anybody some burden, so, so you have this burden inside you, and it's like a stone in your lungs. And people often in the old days used to use that phrase that said, Jesus, he sounds like he's an old stone in his mouth. You know, there's a burden on him. And you have this kind of weight inside you and you can't release it. And one day, just with maybe a friend, maybe with a partner, maybe with a therapist, whoever, you say something. You say, well, this happened to me. This terrible thing happened or whatever. And it's like the stone comes out of your mouth and turns into mist. It turns into air. And, and once that happens, you'd always hear the person say, God, I feel better now. The amount of times you hear that phrase after somebody has unburdened themselves. They might even be on Joe Duffy. They might phone in to somebody. You tell your story. It actually, in a strange way, 
liberates you from it. Your story is that's who you were, and now I tell you that as I step into this new moment. And this new moment is undefined, unnamed, unexplored, and that gives me bliss that I'm here to venture into it. Thanks again to Michael Harding for such an interesting discussion and again to the organisers of Listall Writers Week for making that possible. Please like, share, rate and subscribe to the podcast. Loads more great interviews coming up. So please, you can also follow me on Twitter at WriteStuffChris to get updates on those. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.